we ought to gather up here and pray every Sunday. I might preach better. <laughs> if you did. Man, I tell you what. No guarantees, but it couldn't hurt. <laughs> couldn't hurt. Mm. All right, guys, if we could cue up the PowerPoint here for uh, this morning. And if you will, turn with me to the Gospel of John and the 16th chapter. Gospel of John, 16th chapter. And I alluded to this in my prayer, but state it again. Today is Pentecost Sunday, and it commemorates the, uh, the birthday of the church, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that came. You can read about that in Acts chapter 2. And the Holy Spirit makes all the difference. Uh, it makes all the difference in the Christian life. The apostles had witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ they saw him in a resurrected body, and you might think Jesus would have said, all right, boys, you're good to go now. You've seen me resurrected. You've got all the proof you need. But Jesus commanded them. He said, do not leave. Tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Now, you and I, we don't have to tarry at Jerusalem anymore. Wherever we are, the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. He's already come. So we don't have to pray. I don't have to pray for the Holy Spirit to come. He's already come. He's here. He's everywhere. He's here particularly in a special way when we gather together in his name. And so I don't take that lightly. But uh, we, wanted, we do want to just honor God. The Holy Spirit is as much part of the Godhead as the Father or the Son is. He is, he is God. He's a person. He has feelings. He can be grieved. He can be quenched. And just as God loves you, the Father, just as the Son loves you, the Holy Spirit loves you too. And so we, are, we would be, uh, it is fitting and appropriate for us to, to, uh, to, to recognize Him and to worship Him as God. All right, I'm going to ask you to stand one more time as we read this scripture. And if you'll just read it with me from the translation that's on the, the, uh, the PowerPoint, it'll go a whole lot smoother. <laughs> we'll be in unison. All right, in, in verse... 7, Jesus Christ says this, John 16, verse 7. Let's say it all together. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to ask Pastor Larry Allen if he'll lead us to God in prayer this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this very special day. Pray that you'd be with all of our young people that will be going forth into their lives. We pray that your Holy Spirit would guide them. Father, we pray that our Holy Spirit in Christ. This is a feature of the God of the Godhead that we don't know that much about. We pray, Lord, that you would enlighten our, our lives, help us to be more complete in our understanding of the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that you bless us. Use all that we do and say for your glory. And help us leave this place rejoicing that we've been in the house of the Lord. For it's in thy name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Now, we went through some of chapter 15 on Wednesday night, and I would encourage you to read chapter 15 as we've been going through the Upper Room Discourse. Now, 
In chapter 15, Jesus introduces this idea, the last I am statement. He says, I am the true vine. And the only way that we're going to be able to bear fruit as Christians is if we abide or we spend time with, we remain, we continue in the Son. And then he, he shifted gears in chapter 15, and he, he stops talking about love, and he talks about hate. He mentions the word hate like seven times. And he says that the world, and that when he, the Bible speaks of world, it, it talks about that system, that world system that is uh, characterized by darkness, that is led by Satan. He says the world is going to hate you. Okay, So I'm going to go ahead and say this to you. That if the world loves you, something is wrong. Because Jesus said, I'm the vine and you're the branches. So if I am one with him, then what is true of him will be true of me. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they receive my words, they'll receive you. So if the world thinks you're the greatest thing since sliced bread then something is wrong, bad wrong. Because if I am one with Christ, that means that I'm not going to be able to get on or to use a, a, an expression we all can relate to, I can't g-haul with the world, right? We're, not just, we're just not going to get on. So then in chapter 16, he begins with the words, these things. Let's go to the first slide. <clears throat> these things... Have I spoken unto you that you should not be... Now, the King James says offended. Some translations will say stumble. Uh, some will say don't fall into a trap. The Greek word here is scandalizo. Not, not too much different from our word scandalize. But uh, to fall away or to stumble. Jesus said, I'm telling you this so that when trouble comes, you won't be uh, offended. You won't be troubled. Now, I want to say this to you. If you follow God's plan, you may be tempted to get discouraged and to be offended. Because God's ways are not our ways. His plans are sometimes much more difficult than we would ever imagine that they would be. Now, having said that, we know that the safest place we could ever be is in the will of God. The will of God is not without its dangers, not without its trials and circumstances, uh, tribulations. But if you're in God's will, that's the safest place for you to be. Now, uh, in John chapter 6, Jesus fed the uh, 5,000 men, probably about 15,000 people, maybe 20,000 people total. And everybody was happy. They wanted to make him into a king because he's the bread man. He's the donut man. But then he starts making some hard claims. He says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no eternal life abiding in you. And when he started talking like that, the people said, well, we've had enough of this, Jesus. We, we, we want away. Uh, and in John chapter 6, Jesus said, said, when Jesus knew of himself, that his disciples murmured that he said unto them, uh, he said unto them, does this offend you? Because they were saying, this is a hard saying, Jesus. Some of the things that God says in the Bible are hard to digest if, if you're not saved. Now, later on, they would all be scandalized. You see that in Mark 14, uh, verse 27. And Jesus said unto them, all you shall be, what? 
scandalize, scandalizo. Um, and the reason that they were is because Jesus yielded to those that came to arrest him. What did they want him to do? Fight, right? They wanted him to take over Rome. They wanted him to get rid of Pilate, to get rid of the Sanhedrin. But Jesus' plan was to go to the cross. And because of that, they were scandalized. And I want to say to you that sometimes God will not do it the way you want him to. Sometimes the Lord will not solve the problem in the way that you want him to. See, they wanted Jesus to get rid of the establishment, but the most expedient thing for Jesus to do was to go to that cross. Because if he doesn't go to that cross, you and I can never make it to heaven. Okay? So that's why it's important. Let's go to the next slide. Verse 2. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time comes that whosoever kills you will think that he doeth God's service. That word for service is the Greek word latria, and it means like temple service, like priestly service. And one individual immediately comes to mind, the Apostle Paul, who was formerly Saul of Tarsus. He thought he was doing God's work by killing Christians. And God radically changed him. But the Greek word here for put out of the synagogue, this is, there's three mentions of us here in the Gospel of John, is aposunagogos. Okay. Now, John 9, in chapter 9, is where Jesus heals the man who's been born blind. He's blind from birth. And Jesus healed him. And when he healed him, do you think that the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin were excited about this miracle? They were not excited at all. You know what they threatened to do? Throw him out of the synagogue. <laughs> and, and it says in verse 22 that his parents didn't even stand up for him. You graduates, that's bad when your mom and daddy won't stand up for you. But y'all are going to, aren't you, mom and daddy? You're going to stand up for your kids. <laughs> they, his, these words spoke his parents because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anybody would confess Jesus, what would happen? Put out, put out of the synagogue. Now in John 12, verse 42... We read that some of the leaders believed in Jesus. Did you know there were some Pharisees that loved Jesus, that believed in him? But they refused to confess him openly. Why? Thrown out of synagogue. Because they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Um, we read that, and it don't mean a whole lot to us. We say, well, big deal. They were not able to participate in worship uh, let me make it let me make it churchy for you you might read it and say well big deal I can't go to church anymore I've been looking for an excuse not to go anyway <laughs> right <laughs> you were supposed to laugh there but you didn't because you <laughs> I want to tell you something folks we live in a country where there's a church on every corner men and women have given their lives so that we would have the freedom to go and worship. And there are people in other parts of the world, like where our very own is going, 
who would give anything for the privilege to be able to gather in a public place and worship without fear. So I want you to think about that. Because one day we're going to get before the judgment seat of Christ. Christians are too. Well, Christians are the ones who are going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And unbelievers are going to meet God at the white throne. And what are you going to say to the Lord? Well, I had time for everything else, but I didn't have any time for church. Now, I'm not talking about going on a vacation. I'm not, certainly not talking about people that have health problems that prohibit them from coming to worship. But where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And another wise saying that's not in the Bible is, wherever your heart is, your feet will soon follow. <laughs> All right, moving on. <laughs> Verse 3, he says, These things will they do unto you because... Because is an interesting Bible study. Anytime you see the word because, look and see where it's, what it's there for. Because they've not known the Father nor me. Now, this knowing here is not cognitive, but it's relational. You see? There's a lot of people that know about God, but they don't know God. A lot of people who know about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. There's going to be a lot of people that are church people that are going to go to hell. That's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. Many people are going to say to the Lord, Lord, I did all these things in your name. And Jesus is going to say to them, Depart from me, I never knew you. Not cognitively, right? But relationally. How many of us come to church week after week? We sing about a God that we never talk to. We read the words of God in the Bible that we never pray to. God wants to spend time with you. He wants to know you. Amen. Not just for an hour on Sunday. He wants to know you intimately. He already knows who you are. He knows everything about you. Every hair on your head is numbered. God knows every hang-up you got, every weakness, every temptation, every sin you've ever done, every sin you're ever going to do. And he loves you anyway. Wow. To have a friend like that, you do if you're saved. If you're saved, think about it this way. You got a best friend that sits on the right hand of the Father. When I was in college, guys, I'll tell you a funny story. When I was my senior year of college, uh, I got involved in a campaign. One of my friends was running for office. He was running for a state office. First time he had ever run for anything. He hadn't even run for city council or anything. He ran for a state office, which should have been my first clue we were going to get waxed. <laughs> but, but anyway, he ended up getting a lot of votes in the, in the election. It was in the primary. But anyway, uh, we went out putting out signs everywhere. You know those old campaign signs you hate? They're just littered everywhere. You hate to see them. And we went all the way from here to Duplin County. You know what Duplin County is? That's, that's like the, the home of the hog slat. <laughs> yeah. Now, I like the eastern part of the state. But we went out there. I went with him to all his stump speeches. You know, and I heard the same rhetoric over and over and over again. And, uh, <laughs> and he promised me that if he got in Raleigh, that I would soon follow. 
And so that motivated me, you know, when I'm putting signs out. I thought, you know, this really stinks, but one of these days, I'm going to be up in Raleigh, and I'm going to have my friend. I'm going to have my friend's going to be in the, the governor's mansion, the governor, you know. It didn't work out, right? I'm on my way to heaven, and I got as far as Peachland. <laughs> but I love it. I love Peachland. Love it. Hope it never changes. But listen, I was all excited about the thought that I would have a friend in the governor's mansion. None of this was in my sermon notes. By the way, I came here this morning and I left all my notes at home. How cool is that? How cool is that? And I was like, well, do I turn around and go back and get him? And the Lord said, no. <laughs> Don't need it. But I said all that to say, you have a best friend not in the governor's mansion, not in the White House, but at the right hand of the Father. Amen. Hallelujah. He knows everything about you, and he loves you because he can sympathize with all of your weaknesses. He sympathizes with every single thing that you've ever gone through. All right, verse 4. But these things I have I told you, that when the time shall come, you may remember that I told you them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Now, Jesus is a perfect teacher. Now, he didn't tell them all this stuff up front, right? Because they didn't need to know it. Because Jesus, up until this point, Jesus has been the lightning rod. He's been the one that took all the brunt of the criticism, and they were able to kind of sit back and be like, okay, go Jesus. <laughs> um, thank God for, for people like that that will go up, you know, and, and take, the, take one for the team. And, and also teachers, those of you who are teachers and leaders, it shows you that you don't have to tell everybody everything all at once. You know, you can, you can kind of space it out because they're not going to remember what you said anyway, right, Preacher Larry? <laughs> well, there's only so much, right? I, there's an old saying that preachers ought, do well to remember that the mind can only absorb what the seat can endure. You heard that joke? You say, well, Henry, that was funny about five minutes ago, but I'm getting a little uncomfortable here on the pew. <clears throat> But, you know, God doesn't tell you everything up front anyway. When God was going to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, he didn't say, now, guys, you're going to spend about 40 years wandering around in the wilderness, and then you're going to go into a land that's filled with giants. Why didn't he tell them all that up front? Well, they probably would have stayed in Egypt, right? That's familiar. Just like a parent. You know, if you've got a small kid... You know, dad don't sit down with a, a six-year-old and say, son, one day you're going to hate your life. You're going to have a mortgage. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe you do. Maybe you tell your kid that. I don't know. Why don't you tell them that? Well, because they'll figure it out on their own, won't they? <laughs> All right. Verse 5. But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you askest me, whither goest thou? Now, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, that's a contradiction. Didn't Peter ask him where he was going? Didn't Thomas say we don't know the way? But they actually were not asking because they were concerned about Jesus. They were only thinking about themselves and how his departure was going to affect them. D.A. Carson, uh, he's a theologian, he gave an, uh, an analogy that I will use. It's like, a, uh, it's like a father that's going to take his son fishing. And at the last minute, he gets a very disturbing phone call from his boss 
And his father's, you know, he starts to get beads of sweat on his forehead. And, and he says, son, I can't go. I've been called into the office. And the kid says, well, father, why can't I go? Why can't, where, where are you going? But he's not really concerned about the pressure that his dad's going through. He's just upset that the fishing trip's been canceled. And that's the way these guys are. They're not concerned about what's going on with Jesus. And, uh, and I think that's sad. I think it's sad. Because he's about to endure the worst moment of his life. He's about to endure the most hardship any human has ever endured. But all they can think about is themselves. Self-absorbed people, listen to me carefully, are the most miserable people in the world. They are. Verse 6. But because I've said these things unto you, sorrow has filled your heart. Now the word filled here is the Greek word plerao. It's the same word used in Ephesians where Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Their hearts were filled with all the cares of this world. Let's put up the next slide. Verse 7, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage. It's expedient that I go away. For if I go not away... The comforter will not come. But if I depart, notice Jesus said, I will send him. What does that mean about Jesus? He's God. Just like the Father's God. Jesus is God. Now there's three areas that the Holy Spirit will bring uh, conviction. I think the King James says reprove or reprove or whatever. But it means to convince. There's three areas. Number one, sin. Number two, righteousness. And number three, judgment. Now, on the surface, it might not seem abundantly clear why the Holy Spirit would convict in these three areas. But, but Jesus is going to explain it to us. Let's go to the next slide. Verse 8, excuse me, 9. He says, the first thing the Holy Spirit is going to convince you of is sin... But it's not sins plural, but sin singular. And what is it that he's going to, what sin is, they going to, is he going to convict us of? Not believing in him, right? Now, the world has some concept of sin. If I were to go out uh, and do a man on the street kind of thing and ask people what their idea of sins are, um, what kind of response do you think I would get? Some would say the biggies, right, James? Murder, maybe, maybe adultery, probably not, but maybe. Lying, maybe. Theft, rape, anger. The world has... The world jokes about, what, the seven deadly sins? You know, the world has a concept of sin. But let me tell you, the biggest sin, the unpardonable sin, is failure to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That is the greatest sin. Now, that doesn't mean that those other things are not sinful. They are. But the thing that is going to send you to hell is rejecting God's Son. 
Listen to me carefully. Somebody needs to hear this. Maybe it's not here. Maybe it's out on the airways somewhere. Somebody needs to hear this. You can be the best jolly good person anybody's ever met and bust hell wide open. All you got to do to go to hell is reject God's rescue plan. That's all you got to do. We all have a fatal terminal disease called sin. But God has given us the remedy. Now listen. Imagine this. A venomous poison. And God said, Here is the, uh, here's the remedy. All you have to do is take the, what's the word I'm looking for? The antidote. Thank you. All you have to do is take the antidote. And if you'll take the antidote, you won't die. But you decide to just sit there and die anyway. Is it God's fault that you die? No. You refuse the antidote. Now, in John 3, uh, John gives us his commentary. He says, He that believeth on him is not condemned. This is John 3, 18. But he that believeth not is what? He's condemned already. He's a dead man walking. If you don't believe, you might feel like everything's fine, but you're terminal. John 3, 36. He that believes on the Son hath everlasting life. He that does not believe shall not see life, but what? The wrath of God abides on him. That's terrifying. One last word on this. Paul says, I do not frustrate the grace of God, Galatians 2. If righteousness comes by the law, then what? Are you willing to look God in the eye on the last day and say, your son died for nothing? Because in essence, please hear me carefully. Please hear me carefully. I can't convey this any clearer. If you refuse to accept the death of Jesus Christ, you're basically telling God your son died for nothing. Because I've got another way. i got a better way. And i got to tell you, I don't think it's going to go well for you. You say, well, why are you talking about hell, Henry? Everything I know about hell, I learned from Jesus Christ. It's a real place. And if the Bible is true, and I believe that it is, there's going to be many more people in hell than there are in heaven. And that ought to shock and terrify all of us. Let's go to the next slide. The next thing he says he will convict the world of is righteousness. Now, John doesn't speak a whole lot about righteousness in his gospel. Paul wrote a whole, he wrote a whole letter about it, Romans, the righteousness of God. Righteousness because I go back to my Father, and you see me no more. Now, I see this in a twofold um, way. Uh, number one, the Holy Spirit is going to show us just how unrighteous we really are from a human side. Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. See, they had a standard. But God said, my standard. So here's, what the, here's what's the problem. We think God grades on a curve. 
How many teachers do we have in here this morning? Raise your hand higher, Abby. You need to be proud you're a teacher. I'm proud of all these teachers. All right, thank you. Do y'all ever grade on a curve? I don't like you. Nobody says they do. Man, I loved it when my teachers graded on a curve. You know what my number one concern was when I was in school? It was not how do I make an A in the class. It is what do I need to make on this test in order to pass my grade. I don't want to be in the eighth grade twice. Now, I love math, and I'm just kidding. I didn't like it at all. But I loved Algebra 2 so much, I took it twice. <laughs> and I passed it the second time I took it. You know why? Because I stole the teacher's manual. <laughs> oh, yes. The statute of limitations has run out on that, so I can say that on camera. I had a copy of the, the teacher's manual. The only problem was I couldn't show my work as to how I got the answer. <laughs> anyway. My mom and dad are sitting over there like, we never knew that, son. <laughs> Statute of limitations, my friends. Statute of limitations. Kids, don't lie to your parents. <laughs> they love you. Righteous. See, we think God grades on the curve. Because, see, what we do is we compare ourselves to everybody else. Well, I'm a lot more righteous than he is. You know, I don't do the stuff that he does. I don't drink, smoke, or chew, and I don't date girls that do. <laughs> right? <laughs> now, Isaiah, in chapter 5, he pronounced a woe. He, he pronounced woes on the nation of Israel. And, and I would encourage you to read Isaiah chapter 5 because that's where America is right now. We are facing judgment. But he, he pronounced a woe on all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. But then in chapter 6, Isaiah sees God. And in turn, he sees himself. And he doesn't say, woe unto you. He says, woe is me. Now, Job was one of God's choicest servants. Would you agree with that? I mean, the Bible says that. He was an upright man. He was a perfect man. Job went through tremendous suffering. Job was a righteous man. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus said, in this world you'll have trouble. But when Job finally meets God at the end of the book, I love the way Job puts it. Now, the King James is, is so colorful. Job says, I abhor myself. See, And then later on in Isaiah, the 64th chapter, Isaiah says, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. I don't want to be too graphic, but most theologians say that that should be translated dirty menstruous cloths. That's what God thinks. That's what God thinks of our good works to get us to heaven. So the Holy Spirit convince, convinces us of our unrighteousness, but it also convinces us of our righteousness. Mm. Now this is Pentecost Sunday, right? On the day of Pentecost, let's quote Peter, Acts chapter 2. I should have just preached Peter's sermon today, but that's all right. Therefore, Acts 2.33, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has shed for this which you now see and hear. 
Now, how is the Holy Spirit convincing the world of righteousness? He's convincing the world that Jesus Christ was perfect. <laughs> oh, this is so good. We know that Jesus was perfect because he was the only one who was able to enter into God's presence on his own merit, with his own blood. And now God has exalted him and given him a name that's above every name. And nearly 2,000 years ago, on that Pentecost Sunday, the Holy Spirit came. And that was proof positive that Jesus is exactly... He's exactly what he said he would be. The Father accepted Jesus' sacrifice and sent the Holy Spirit. Praise God. Glory to God. And notice, uh, notice Peter says, we know this because we can see it and we can hear it. It was visibly demonstrable that Jesus is now at the right hand of the Father. Because you had all those folks from all over the world and they hear these Galilean hillbillies speaking in their language. The wonderful works of God. Glory to God. All right, last verse. Let's go to the last slide, guys. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Tyler, for doing a good job up there. Last verse, he says, The Holy Spirit will convince of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Now, there is a future judgment coming, but this is not what he's talking about. He's not talking about the white throne when we all stand before God. Or excuse me, when the unbeliever stands before God. But he's talking about the judgment that took place at the cross. Uh, in John 12, 31, Jesus said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world is cast out. What Satan thought was going to be a great victory for him turned out to be his worst nightmare. The Apostle Paul said, if, if, if the devil knew, I'm paraphrasing greatly here, but he says, if the devil knew what he was doing, he would have never crucified Jesus. <laughs> that Satan is a defeated foe. Colossians 2 says that the Lord triumphed over them, over the principalities and powers. He paraded the devil. He spoiled his kingdom. The devil don't have the keys to his own kingdom anymore. Did you know that? Jesus said, I've got the keys of hell and death. I'll take the keys. <laughs> you won't be needing those. Notice in Hebrews 2, verse 14. It says, Jesus not only destroyed the works of the devil, but he destroyed the devil himself. You see that? Jesus did for us what we could never do. He became one of us. He lived a perfect life. He was tempted in every point, just like we are. And yet he never sinned. And when he went to that cross, dear friend, Satan's decisive defeat was forever sealed. How many of you want to be on the losing side? 
No takers? No takers. Satan is a loser. You say, well, I'm not worshiping the devil. I'm a good guy. Listen to me. I hate to keep saying listen to me, but I feel like I need to say it. So you bear with me. You know, preachers have all got these little things that they say over and over again. So just, just overlook me. Would you do that? I love you enough to overlook some of the stuff you do. <laughs> Not all of it, but most of it. Love me enough to just bear with me. Can you do that? <laughs> Every other religion, though it may go under different names, is really the church of Satan. If you choose not to accept Jesus Christ, but you choose to do your own thing, you're following Satan. And that thought ought to be repulsive to you. And he's, Satan is content for you to think that you're in the driver's seat. He's content for you to think that. The devil is content for you to think you're the pilot of your own life. Just... Just do your own thing. And you'll follow him all the way to hell. The Holy Spirit will convince the world of unbelief, the sin of unbelief. He will convince the world of the righteousness of God, which is far different than the righteousness of man. And he will convince the world of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. I want to be on the winning side. Would you stand? The good news is, you can be on the winning side. It's not too late for you to switch teams. It's not too late. Now, I've done my job. One thing I, I'm learning the older I get, and I'm hard-headed... It's that those three things that the Holy Spirit does, only He can do them. I can't convict you of sin. I can't convict you of righteousness. I can't convince you that Satan is judged. But the Holy Spirit can. And He works through the preaching of the gospel. Okay? So today, on this Pentecost Sunday... God is giving each person in this room and each person that's listening and each person that's going to listen later on an opportunity to have eternal life. In just a moment, this altar is going to be open. There's no magic formula. You don't need me to lay hands on you. You don't need to go through any ritual. You simply come to God as you are and repent of your sin. Your sin of unbelief. Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me for trying to do this my own way. I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior because I believe that he lived and lived a perfect life and I believe that he died for me and I believe that he rose again, that he is now at the right hand of the Father and the fact that the Holy Spirit is here today is proof positive 
that there is only one way to heaven. There is only one. There is no other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved but by the name of Jesus. I invite you to come.